I've been fat my whole life, and I've also been happy and confident and self-assured my whole life. And I've always had this niggling, I had always had this niggling thought in my head that like there wasn't anything wrong with me. Even though, you know, I grew up obviously in the fat hiding culture we all live in. I grew up with a mother who dieted constantly and who put me on diets really early ages. I spent a lot of time at war with my body um, the first 25, 27 years of my life. But I still always had that kind of thought that like, there's nothing wrong with me. So when I talk about coming out as fat, what I mean is embracing that part of my identity, not shying away from it, um, and refusing to be ashamed for it. It gets better cause it has to get better. My name is Sophie Hagen, and you're listening to the Made of Human podcast, in short, Mopad. It's a podcast in which I speak to nice people and try and figure out how to do life and how to, to function as a human being. And if the person I'm speaking to have no idea how to do that, then uh, we'll just try and feel a bit less alone together. Uh, my name is Sophie Hagen. I'm a, I'm a stand-up comedian, and I'm from Denmark. And this week, I'm speaking to fat activist Kat Posey, and wow... Wow, wow, wow. I think it's the most starstruck I have ever been in an interview. Kat Posey, chances are you won't know her. Chances are you actually won't know who she is. But she is extraordinary. She is more or less the only fat activist in New Zealand. She's a scholar. She's a, a scientist. A scientist, is that the right word? Probably not. She's something, something clever. And uh, she just she's done so much for the fat activism community and she is so funny and so cool so i'll let you listen to our chat in just a bit first you need to know that i am going on tour with my brand new show dead baby frog which is a comedy show about emotional abuse <laughs> fun times uh this autumn i will be in peterborough winchester liverpool ferrum coventry swindon leeds glasgow aberdeen norwich kendall milton Keynes, bath aldershot maidenhead newcastle newport leicester Manchester, Oxford, Bristol, Hull, Bromsgrove, Stockton, Cambridge, Colchester, New Milton, Reading, Whitehaven, Everestwith, Northampton, and Canterbury. Canterbury, Canterbury, who knows? Uh, some of these dates have already sold out, so do get your tickets, especially if you live in New Milton or Whitehaven, which I can see so far, not a lot of people live there. I mean, there are probably a lot of people who live there, but of those who live there, not a lot of people have bought tickets. Um, the rest, going fine. So thanks for that. Uh, after that, so I'm going to Denmark to do my show, Dead Baby Frog, and I will be doing shows in Copenhagen, Aarhus, Olbo, Espia, and Odense. And go to sophiehagen.com for all the tickets. And whilst you're there, sign up for my newsletter so you can get all the gossip, all the gossip and all the secrets, and you can find out uh, when I'm gigging next. For example, if I do London dates or maybe, maybe Australia dates. Who knows? You can buy uh, my show from last year if you haven't had a chance to see it live. Uh, my last show is called Shima Shatter. It's about uh, being an introvert, about not liking people. And you can buy it on sophiehagen.com forward slash shop for just five pounds. And it's filmed at the Phoenix Artists Club in front of an audience made purely out of Mopad listeners. So that was a very, very lovely experience. Before I let you listen to the episode, we shall do this week's Acts of Disobedience. This week's listener is called Ali, and this is what she wrote. This is nowhere near as brave as the other ones, but today I stood up for myself in a roundabout way. Baby steps, baby steps, I have the backbone of a jellyfish. 
My friend posted a cartoon on her Instagram of a fat sleeping beauty with the caption sleeping good personality written underneath. She is holding a chicken drumstick in one hand and the prince is stood next to the bed looking distressed. Usually something like this would make me feel bad about myself. But not today. I've already taken a self-esteem hit this morning and I needed a win. So I simply put, she's still beautiful, and then a purple heart. To be honest, I'm not good at standing up to friends or, or I'm not good at confrontation in general. I need people to like me. I'm hoping my friend realizes how hurtful something like this is to fat people. Yeah, that's fucking good. I, I know there is a thing about baby steps, and but we're all starting somewhere and, you know, we're going to start here and eventually just will win. You know, that's I totally get that. So that's really, really great. Uh, keep submitting your acts of disobedience on madeofhumanpodcast.com where you can also buy a Mopad t-shirt. Now, please enjoy this episode with the incredibly cool Cat Posse. I'm Cat Posse, and I'm a fat study scholar based in New Zealand, and I'm also active in fat activism. It's already so cool. It's already <laughs> so cool. And I think the first time I really learned about you or heard about you or heard your voice was on your which is a radio show, but mm. it's be, which becomes a podcast. It right? does, yeah. It's podcasts on iTunes and SoundCloud. Yeah, and you read out you read out a thing that I'd written. Oh yeah, might have spotlighted spotlit one of your blogs. Yeah, and I because I, I remember I knew exactly where I were because I was like in the, the like the. I think the wine section of like Marks and Spencer's or Waitrose because I remember it being like cold and dark because I was just standing there crying. Oh my goodness! Because I don't think I was expecting it and I was just like mm. listening and then all of a sudden I was like, wait, that's me. Because <laughs> I'd never heard it being read out loud before, so I was just like weeping Aww. in like a supermarket. I was just being super touched. I think that's the first time anyone's told me my show made them cry. Really? I'm not sure how to feel about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that no one would be to feel a tiny bit uncomfortable, which I guess is fair enough. So you're, you're basically... I have to admit, I'm always amazed when someone's like, oh, I listen to your show. Oh, really? I'm like, you do? Really? Wow. That's so cool. Well, let's talk about that because it is kind of a niche show. Tell me about, tell me about the show because it, mm. it is, I guess it is niche. And also, in my head, it just makes it more niche that you're based in New Zealand. Right. Well, the show's actually what kind of launched me into doing fat activism on a, like, I don't know, legit basis, if you would. Um, so probably for a few years before I started the show, which was in 2011, um, I had gotten involved in, um, like, this scholarly, scientific part of understanding the relationship between fatness and health and, um, you know, fat embodiment and fat identity. And so I had been posting some stuff onto Facebook from like a scholarly perspective, you know, like here's an interesting piece about, but that's very much where I was in my like process of coming out as a fat person. Um, and because I had been posting things on Facebook and I was becoming more and more political about it. So it started with articles from journals and then it started to, you know, include the occasional blog piece written by someone like Leslie Kinzel um, or Marianne Kirby um, or, or someone like that. And, one of my friends on Facebook, I guess, was reposting quite a lot of what I was posting. And one of her friends on Facebook happened to be a station manager of a local access radio station. So he contacted me directly and said, hey, um, I've been seeing a lot of stuff that you've been posting on Facebook. I think it'd be great if you came and did a radio show for me. 
Uh, and I was like, yeah, you don't want my radio show. <laughs> I immediately dismissed it, you know, cause I, I was like, no, you wouldn't want this. Cause this wouldn't be about like weight loss and sad fatties and you know, how to be a better person. Like ugh, that would not be my show. Um, so I just, I just really dismissed him. And then he came back a few months after that and said, seriously, I think you should come do a show for me. And he talked a bit more about the fact that, you know, as an access radio show, which meant, means they're like on state radio. So it's the AM, not the FM. Um, and he talked about that a really important part of access radio in New Zealand was providing a voice to those in marginalized communities who weren't represented in kind of the mainstream radio and mainstream media. So we talked a bit more about it. And so I started to kind of think about what that could look like, but I still was like, trust me, dude, you don't want my show. So a few months after that, he came back and was like, really, I think you should do this. I'm going to try one more time. And by that point, I had thought about it enough that I thought, yeah, okay, actually, let, let's do this. This could be really cool. And I told him, though, I said, this isn't going to be about weight loss. This isn't going to be about apologizing. I said, there could be quite a lot of pushback against the show, against the station, against you. Um, I said, are you ready to start glorifying obesity? Because that's basically like what you're going to hear. Um, and he, yeah, he didn't care. He was like, you know, do what you want. We went through the rules. I was like, can I swear on the show? And he was like, absolutely. As long as it's in a context, you know, he was like, don't just get on the air and just start dropping F bombs. But, um, and I was like, well, that's really, that's really good. And that's really important. Um, and I had a really great conversation I can't even remember who it was with. It might've been with Marquita, Chris Jansen, my first year about like knowing that you've made it as a fat activist when you get your first like die fat cunt email. And I was really glad. And that conversation like (laughs) kind of, it had evolved in our, in, in our conversation. And so when we started talking about it, I remember thinking, I'm so glad I'm allowed to swear on this show. I never checked about the C word though. (laughs) Um, Yes, yeah, so that was 2011. So the show's been on the air for six years. Um, it's had, I think it's current, just aired episode like 218 or something like that. And um, it's, it's weekly in a way, although I don't obviously produce a new show every single week. I do take some time off, uh, usually during the holidays when I'm uh, home in the States for Christmas. But it is. It's, it was the foray. It was the show. When, when I decided to do the show, I thought, well, I should start blogging and I'll go ahead and get on Tumblr. And then shortly after that, I got on Twitter. And it really was what kind of started my being an active participant um, in the anti assimilationist activism of fat politics. I'm like, my whole body is just one big chair right now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you said a lot of things that mm. I want. So sorry. That I want, no, 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 I no, no. Speak no. shorter. <laughs> no, you should not. You should not. I, I just need to remember all my questions. So for the first thing you said was, um, you said coming out as a fat person. Mm. Go, yeah. Go, go on. <laughs> because I think I feel like I, I I feel like I might know what you mean, but I'd love to hear your take on it. So I think that, um, like for me, and this is probably true for other fat people listening. I've been fat my whole life, like, first of all, like, let's just put that out there. Like, my dad likes to show me pictures of when I was, like, four, and he was like, you're not fat here, see, you haven't been fat your whole life. And then I pull out the picture of, like, the school photo from that year, or, like, me and my friends, to show him I was the fattest one, Mm. you know? So, like, even if I wasn't what someone would look at and go, that's a fat kid, I was the fattest of all my school classmates, my peers, so therefore, I was the fat one. Um... 
So I've been fat my whole life, and I've also been happy and confident and self-assured my whole life. And I've always had this niggling, I had always had this niggling thought in my head that like there wasn't anything wrong with me, even though, you know, I grew up obviously in the fat eating culture we all live in. I grew up with a mother who dieted constantly and who put me on diets really early ages. I spent a lot of time at war with my body. Um, the first 25, 27 years of my life, but I still always had that kind of thought that like, there's nothing wrong with me. So when I talk about coming out as fat, what I mean is embracing that part of my identity, not shying away from it, um, and refusing to be ashamed for it. And it's funny because um, the reason that I call my, my show and my blog and everything else, I call it Friend of Marilyn because as I was coming closer to being out as, as fat, I realized really quickly that like most fellow fat people I came in contact with were not. And they would be, they would get horrified when I tried to talk openly about fatness or about an experience I had, or even just calling myself fat, which we've all had that experience, right? You call yourself fat and like that, no, that intake of breath, which is almost always followed by, yeah, like, oh no, 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 you're You're not not fat, you're not fat, which is ridiculous because like I am fat. I'm not just fat. I'm like super fat and I've been super fat for at least 15, 20 years. And I still have people rush to assure me. No, 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 no. Um, and so I realized that like, oh, not all fat people. And, and, and it, I didn't so much realize it because I had been that fat person for a really long time. I wouldn't have used that word. I, you know, wouldn't have like openly talked about it. I didn't have the politics around it. I wasn't necessarily like apologizing for myself, but I was definitely in that state of self-survival of like, you know, if I, if I don't like point out to my friends that the store we're shopping in doesn't carry my size, maybe Mm. they won't notice, Mm. right? Or at least it won't draw attention to the fatty, fat, Mm. fat, fat in the room with them. Um, And so that's why I called my show Friend of Marilyn, because I I, I felt like I needed a way, like a friend of Dorothy or a friend of Bill, like a way if I met another fellow fat person to be like, so are you like one of me? You know, are you an out fat person? Can we have this conversation? Can we just have a good time? you know, or not. And so that's why I called the show friend of Marilyn. I checked with Marilyn Wan before I used her name. Um, because that's the Marilyn in the friend of Marilyn. I checked with her and was like, is it okay with you? If I, you know, call my, my blog and my show and all this kind of stuff, this, and she was right on board. So thanks for that, Marilyn. Um, but that's why I called it that because in my experience, and this is still true today, like most fat people I meet, they're not out as fat. And at the same time, the, the, Thin people I know get is that weird them being they might not be uncomfortable with my with me being fat but they're uncomfortable with talking oh like so like on the plane here because we're in Berlin right now oddly <laughs> we're in Berlin and on the plane here I was, not in New Zealand not, <laughs> not in, in Denmark or the UK right. anywhere else but Berlin in Berlin yeah. sure why not so on the way here we were uh, so my two friends booked the the trip and uh, so they chose the first row of the flight. And I was like, I'm fine asking for an extension uh, seat belt. But they often won't let you have one in the first row. That's it's an emergency exit. I didn't know, which does not make sense. 
That doesn't make sense. I cannot understand why you wouldn't have... I, anyways, so I asked as a casual, hey, can I have the... Already I was panicking before the flight because on the front row they usually have... Um, they also don't like, have armors that move. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I was like, I might not be able to fit in this seat and then that'll be awkward. And then I asked for the extension and she was did that whole, like, of course, in the most as do it as way of like, oh, actually... <laughs> I'm really sorry. It, it did say so on the website, and I was like, "No, no, it's fine, it's fine." Like, you have to move during takeoff and landing, and for me, it was fine. Like if I'd been alone, just during takeoff yeah. and landing, yeah, then I could go back to my seat. Really? Oh, I've never heard that before. Oh, really? Oh, it just felt bad for me. <laughs> Interesting. So, I, so I had to get like five rows behind and sit there, and I was, I could feel how I was so, I was fine with it. Like this, I mean, not fine in a political sense, of course, sure, it's horrible, but. I would just feel like there was that with my friends who were, who were both thin, who had to deal with the fact that like, they, they saw it happen. Yeah. They saw what it's like and they hadn't thought of that. They, mm. She was like apologizing. I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have booked these seats. I was like, no, you had no idea. You, you have no to do the knowing. emotional labor for them to make them feel better. Yeah, because yeah, I, good I, times. I, 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 I <laughs> it's one of my favorite it. things. <laughs> I was like, no, this is just, oh yeah, this is what it's like. You know, for me, and you know, you, I mean, you come, we came to this flat, and there's a lift, and we're on the third floor, and I, I'm, I just say, I'm like, I, I'm gonna take the lift, like, you can take the stairs, I'm not even gonna, and they're like, oh, it's not that many stairs, I'm like, mm, is it, is it though? <laughs> how many stairs is it for you compared to how many stairs it is for me? <laughs> I don't remember why I said something. You're like, good. are you a better person because you're taking the stairs? <laughs> don't you love that we're all socialized to make excuses? Yeah. I, just the other day, I can't even remember where I was. It was before I left New Zealand and I was in a building where I always take the elevator. I have no shame about <laughs> taking elevators, escalators, like, hmm. Um, and an older woman, I say older, so I'm 40 or almost 40, not quite. Um, a woman that I would have assessed to be somewhere in her 50s uh, came and stood next to me and she looked at me and she immediately was like, oh, you know, my back's like... Just to no. meet, like, to, one, to yeah. a perfect stranger, like, uh, and I'm not looking at her in any, I wasn't, I don't even think I looked at her until she spoke to me, but she immediately, like, felt that compulsion to turn to me and give the reason, like, to justify or explain why she was taking the elevator, <sighs> and and I looked at her, and I gave her what I hope is my most gentle smile, which I'm not a very <laughs> gentle person, I'm not very affect-oriented either, I'm very instrumental, um, but I gave her what I hope was my most gentle smile and said, um, uh, you never have to explain your decisions to strangers. And she kind of blinked at me and we both got on the elevator mm. and like, as we were, you know, as I was stepping to get off, I turned and I smiled to her and at her again and then got off. And, but yeah, it just, it's so bizarre the way, and I think women do it more than men. Like it's part yeah. of the gender socialization. Mm. Um, but yeah, the way that we feel like that need to explain yeah. to strangers, to families, to friends, whether it is our food choices, our health seeking behavior choices, especially around exercise. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's just, it, I, I understand why it might be harrowing for people who've never met fat phobia, met you know, fat phobic society because they've just not been part of it. You know, like we were sitting in their garden, my friends as well, and I couldn't fit in the garden chair, so I just went in and took another chair. But there was that, like... Yeah, that moment. And you go, oh, this is so new to you. This is so new to all of you. 
And like, and I just was thinking about like, oh, when I was 16, this would have killed me. But now yeah. I'm like, oh, it's so annoying that this makes people uncomfortable because I, I wish it would make people fucking angry. Yeah. Like, I want them to be like, fucking this plane instead of going, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> this is all. Did you read that great piece by um, Ijoma Alulu? about like why we don't think fat people are worth fighting for. No. It's fantastic. I probably just mispronounced her name, so apologies um to that. But it was a piece She's in amazing. the Oh my god, I love her. It was a piece in the establishment probably a couple months back, but it was basically like why we don't think or why we think fat people aren't worth fighting for. And it was specifically around like plus size clothing and about how most not most straight sized people like don't blink at the fact that the brands that they shop don't, you know, size mm. to fit all bodies. Um, and you know, she was kind of drawing parallels between like, you know, we fight all these other fights, you know, like whether it's like, you know, f- companies that aren't ethical and how they produce their clothes. Cause it's sweatshops or, you know, companies that, you know, support bullshit like blue lives matter or like, and so she was kind of put, you know, pointing out all mm. these other ways that even just through fashion alone, you know, social justice minded people like draw lines and make a stand. And yet like you never hear a peep. And I think it was partly, I think it had been kind of instigated because there actually was someone who had posted something about like, wouldn't it be great? You know, straight size people refuse to shop at a, a brand. I can't mm. remember what it was because it like a bunch of straight size people like flood into the comments about how ridiculous that was. Yeah. But it was a really powerful piece. So if you haven't read it, um, yeah, I would definitely say like read all of her stuff Yeah, yeah. Um, about everything, about race, about uh, fatness, about all of the stuff. But I, 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 that was a piece that I, um, I spotlit on the blog actually Amazing. not too long ago because yeah, I thought it was, it was one of those things that until someone says that out loud, it like never even occurs to you necessarily to think about mm. you know it was one of those yeah. kind of light mode like really shifting the paradigm or the framework of how you're you know just thinking every single day to be like huh oh yeah what's up with that <laughs> do you remember the moment that do you remember the first light bulb moment of within fat activism and because i'll explain my because my light bulb moment was I guess realizing what capitalism was because mm. all the voices in my head I had believed to be reality and then when I found out that those were more or less just slogans from companies wanting to make money <laughs> it just clicked like I remember where I remember what school I remember what like where the seat I was sitting on like the moment I realized this I was like wait oh all the thoughts I have if I was to act on them all the weight loss thoughts and stuff that would it, require me to go out and buy a lot of stuff thus mm. people make money thus the voices stem from the company holy shit and then everything just made sense in terms of that's where all of all of yeah. this comes from all of this hatred all of this stems from yeah capitalism and that that was the one that, and it's a hard thing because i often get emails from people saying how do i learn to love my body and capitalism is a weird <laughs> Yeah, because I imagine people want you know look in the mirror and say <laughs> I love my body a lot, but genuinely for me it was put just a mirror realizing. in your bathroom like a full length that you see every time you get out of the shower. That's you know is that a tip? Is that I, a tip? I, I think it is actually like oh, really? it, it is actually one of the things that I did kind of in the several years actually after getting into fat politics and I realized that I still was struggling as I think a lot of us do, you know, because yeah. we have good days, bad days, like whatever. And so one of the things I did is I put a full length mirror. 
that ever, that's positioned so that every time I get out of the shower, I can't help but see my naked fat body. And now, I mean, I've dropped trial for Substantia Jones at the Ad Positivity Project, I think on six or seven occasions now. So, you know, worked for me. <laughs> that's a really good piece of advice. Um, Full-size mirror. And yeah, and where you're naked, you know, because you do yeah. actually hear, because I think I probably got the idea from the fact that it is common for people to say, make sure you have full size mirrors in your house. So you're not just seeing like your face up. Um, and for me, it wasn't like what I looked like clothed. It was just, you know, what I looked like naked and like what my, and not just my fat body, but what any fat body looked like naked. And it was probably a one, two punch of full size mirror where I saw it every time I got out of the shower, but then also actively like looking at other naked fat bodies online that a positivity project being, you know, one of those key places because, you know, the more that you're exposed to something, if it, even if it doesn't engender joy, which it does for me now, it at least strips away any of the disgust that I absolutely used to feel about fat bodies and about my own naked fat body, because that's how I was raised. You know, I was raised that this is what that meant. And so, you know, doing that for quite a while, just stripped away the disgust and continuing to do it, brought in the joy. And um, I think the light bulb moment for me actually is a bit similar to yours in terms of capitalism actually probably could be kind of the bottom line. Um, for me, it, it actually, it, it started though with the science. So mm. when I was doing my PhD in human development, my dissertation research was looking at weight identity in, in super fat women. So women like myself, me search, as you often hear um, what, people what? call me such, yeah, me search. So like when research is done, when you're doing research about your groups that you belong to, <laughs> there are those, I love learning about science slang. He would call it me search. It's also often called vanity research. Right. Um, so I was doing, I want, so I was exploring weight identity and super fat women. Um, and one of the last women that I interviewed had asked me if I had ever read Paul Campos's the obesity myth. And I was like, you know, no, I sure haven't. And she was like, oh, it's really interesting. You might like it. So I added it to the list of like, when the dissertation is done, this is this is the life I want to lead. Um, because for anyone listening out there who's done a dissertation and a PhD, that's kind of all you do while you're doing it. So I added it to the list. And it was probably about a year after I finished that I finally made it to the point on the list where that was. And so I picked up this book. Um, Paul Campos is a, a, a law professor used to be in Colorado, somewhere in the States. Um, and he got really interested in issues around weight during the Monica Lewinsky scandal because he was fascinated by how much of the attention was on the fact that like the president did what he did with a quote unquote fat girl. Mm. Um, and so he did quite a lot of research, uh, partnering up with like a few public health people, um, and some obesity, um, some critical obesity researchers like Paul Ernstberger. And he, one of the things he produced, uh, in addition to some several articles was this book called the obesity myth. And this book was, is <laughs> still in existence. Um, it's a really easy to read primer on the science that exists around weight and health. And for me, it was the first introduction to any of this kind of critical approach to the science. I didn't actually know the science very well to begin with. Like I, I knew what everyone knew, right? That being fat was unhealthy, that it was bad for you. Mm. And that, you know, not being fat would mean that you were healthier and healthy again, et cetera. Um, 
but I had never really looked at the literature because the literature for my PhD was all about identity development and weight was a, a much smaller kind of part of it. I think back now and I'm like far out, if I were to do that research now, like it would be so completely different. <laughs> uh, and in fact, I look back on my PhD, which talks about, you know, these morbidly obese women. And I'm like, oh God, but <laughs> like, that was part of my journey. That's where yeah. I was then. Yeah, we've all been there. That's okay. I'll have to forgive myself. Like <laughs> be generous with you, cat. Um, <laughs> so Paul's book, it, it's incredibly well-written and, you know, one of, and it's well-sided, it's well-supported, you know, so he's talking about how like one being fat isn't unhealthy and two, we don't know how to make people non-fat and three, we don't know if people are healthier when they become non-fat because we can't make enough people non-fat for long enough to find out. Like, so he goes through and I mean, just destroys pretty much every thing that I had known and I'm using air quotes about fatness and health, um, drawing from the literature and I'm a scientist and a scholar. And so for me, like that was the, that was the way to, to wake me up. You know, the politics stuff would have probably been interesting to me as a feminist, but it was the, the science that was like, what? And I remember that the first thing I started doing was pulling these articles that he was referencing to read them myself because, you know, not that I didn't trust his interpretation of it, but that's again, what you do as a scholar, so I start reading this stuff myself and my mind is just being blown by pretty much every piece because I'm like, wait, what? And one of the arguments that he made that stuck with me that brings it to the capitalism is he talks about how the World Health Organization as an organization doesn't actually have a lot of its own money. Um, and so the money it does have, it focuses on what I think he refers to as like real health problems, malaria, HIV, tuberculosis, that kind of stuff. Um, and so they rely on other groups to kind of uh, feed them policy, white paper documents, that kind of stuff on lots of other health things, including obesity. And so he talked about how the World Health Organization, all of their stuff on obesity is fed to them through the International Obesity Task Force, the IOTF. And the IOTF is a science lobby for the two largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. And so for me, like that detail, far out, that detail really resonated with me because the money, right? Bringing it back to capitalism. As a, as a feminist, you know, this idea of, you know, big pharma, which has got such a long history of violence against women and violence against, you know, people of color. And then as a scientist, you know, this idea that the World Health Organization, which is seen as like the authoritative um, voice on all things related to health, that everything that comes out of there around obesity is, is coming from this other place, which is a lobby organization I mean, for me, like that was probably like the biggest light bulb moment that I had. Um, it feels like I just felt like, you know, when you watch like an action film and then towards the end of it, they're, <laughs> they're going, oh, wait, actually. And then they have this big whiteboard and they go, mm. well, and then they end up going, if, if this goes all the way to the top. Right. Everyone's involved. That's and they right. look at like a security guard by the guy who's going, like, he's just like, oh my God, it really feels like this big, holy shit, everyone's in on it. Yeah. And Paul's book actually lays it out. You know, so it's another thing that I would definitely recommend if people are interested in like the science aspect of it, because 
his book really doesn't. There's other people that write about it, like Michael Gard is another one of my favorites, but Michael's writing is pretty dense. Mm. He's got a great book called The End of the Obesity Epidemic, um, and it's fantastic, and it really you know, nicely kind of shows that obesity rates basically leveled off, especially in the Western world over a debt, like right around the time that the real hype about obesity started. Um, but his writing's really dense. Paul's isn't like Paul's book. It's, it's definitely written more for a lay audience. So I'd recommend it to anyone who's interested. So what's the, what's the answer? To you know what I mean? so how, <laughs> what's the question? Why Sophie? Are not, why are they, yeah, what, what is the question? What's the, I just, it's like when someone is, it's true, you know, like <laughs> we're on the right side of history. Mm, you know what I mean? We are. But I still feel, as you said about why we still don't fight for fat people, I feel like I see that in a lot of social justice stuff. Yep. I see a lot of, that's the one thing where you... They, they fall down really yeah, quick. Really, yeah, really. That, that and another thing I've noticed at the moment is ableist language. That's uh, another yeah. place where people can really say, no, 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 you can, we can say whatever we want. Um, or we could you? argue about, yeah, you, you should be taking the stairs. Or we yeah. could make fun of Whole Foods offering an already peeled orange in a plastic oh, yeah. container. You know, oh, yeah. yeah. But a- ableism is, is incredibly rampant in most yeah. social justice groups as well, just like fat phobias. So what do we do? Um, I mean, I think for me, I think that a lot of it is about focusing in on on the politics side of it on the civil rights side of it specifically uh, for both fat people and um, around issues of ableism uh, and disability in my experience what happens anytime you try to start talking about fat civil rights is um, my favorite what I like to call a fat herring is brought up which (laughs) which is health yeah you know that's the way that you know people try to just derail any kind of conversation around whether it's around, you know, discrimination against fat people, microaggressions, everyday fat phobia, or actual like, you know, civil rights discussions around legis excuse me, legislation and whatnot, that fat herring always flies in to distract, to deflect, but what about their health? And, you know, even if you can kind of get them away from that, then they double down, you know, but think of the children. (laughs) Um, So what I do now, and this is very different from what I've done in the past. um, And if you go back and you look at kind of my evolution, you know, thinking around this and talking around this, especially in mainstream media, you can definitely see that I'm in a very different place now than I used to be. Because now I don't, I don't talk about health. I don't let them talk about health. Um, I used to talk a lot about health. I mean, especially because it was the science of understanding the actual relationship between the two that was what tipped me into being an activist and really being interested in this as a scholar as well. I spent so long, you know, the first 10 years or so, not that long, but I spent a long time of my activism and my scholarship trying to educate people around what I called the obesity myths um, I did a lot of work with, you know, healthcare providers and, you know, other kinds of direct service providers around that kind of, so, like, I spent so much time talking about that, you know, when they'd ask me in interviews, like, are you healthy? I'd be like, well, first of all, it depends on how you define health, you know, second of all, you know, it depends on this. And like, I, I spent so much time talking about it. And then something clicked for me probably about two years ago 
where, I mean, I'd always been aware of and have always believed that it was problematic to try to kind of to put up fat unicorns, you know, to try to suggest that, you know, well, if fat people, if fat isn't in, in fact unhealthy, then therefore, you know, cause it, it sets up that dichotomy of, you know, well, if you're a healthy fat person, then you're okay. But if you're an unhealthy, so I've always been aware of, you know, those issues and very much, um, you know, not playing into those kinds of arguments, but was still really interested in helping kind of educate people more about like, what is the actual science? And about two years ago, it kind of finally clicked for me that I was like, this is just a herring, you know, talking about health actually doesn't have any basis whatsoever on whether or not fat people's humanity should be respected, whether or not you should be able to discriminate against someone because of their body size. And so I just stopped talking about it. I wrote a piece actually for the Association of Size, Diversity and Health blog. They came to me and they were like, hey, would you write something for us? And I said, yeah, can I write about how I'm not going to talk about health anymore? <laughs> and they were like, um, okay. <laughs> and they published it. They were really great. Um, the editor was really great to work with, but you know, it was definitely a very different kind of piece for a health blog for me to just explicitly say, I'm not talking about health anymore. And these are the reasons. Um, and so I think that, you know, as both an activist and scholar in the work that I do, whether it's talking one-on-one to someone, whether it's talking in the media, whether it's in my own writing and my own work, health is no longer part of that equation. It's not part of the conversation. When they, you know, bring it back to that, I, why does it matter? You know, are you suggesting that my humanity or anyone's humanity should be based on their health status? Are you suggest like, because we have to get that herring out of the way because otherwise you can never get past that part of the conversation. Oh, that's excellent advice. Like from activist to activist, that's ex excellent advice. So here's a question that I always ask. I think this is quite relevant from what we've just been talking about. Um, so I have to imagine the scenario. And this may be easier because we're in Berlin, actually. Uh, so this is like in the, a bit in the future. And uh, wherever we're both living, <laughs> this place we now both live in. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> has been like taken over by like an evil dictator of some sort. Sure. And he's uh So we're in the United States right now. <laughs> yeah. But Pence we're like Trump. full on we're we're full on. <laughs> They're killing people well yeah, again. <laughs> right, sure. Pets and Trump, yeah. Keep going. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> This is all becoming very real. Uh, and we, uh, anyway, so there's soldiers in the street and all of that. And then um you can in that situation you can choose between More or less between three things. You can either, you know, join the bad side, you can stay neutral, stay keep to yourself, or you can join the resistance. I I, I feel stupid. I feel I'm in the resistance. Like, yeah, obviously. yeah, yeah. But okay, so within the resistance, though, I knew you were going. I was. I felt silly even finishing that question. But within the resistance, where would you be? Because we're talking like proper. Like there, are, we'll have like foot soldiers. We have people who are uh, like kamikazeing their way through, <laughs> like the like hierarchy. Like, is what you're not, asking? No, not hierarchy. No, yeah. no, no. Because I, I believe in our resistance, this won't be a hierarchy per se. Okay, we'll all kind of right. Yeah, I, I mean, so. I would hope not, but right. You know. Yeah, I'm more thinking like the role you would play because we'd have because I've interviewed, I've spoken to a lot of people about this, and some people prefer to have like a desk job, which there's room for that in the resistance. Yeah. You know, and there'll, there'll be people who are like leading fractions and could you see yourself in this kind of war zone, like which role you would play. You could be a spy, right? I'm not cool enough for that. <laughs> I'm not cool enough to be in Berlin, by the way. Let me just say that right now. I've been here three weeks and oh I'm God. very confident that I'm not cool enough to be here, but, um, I've been here for 24 hours. I have the same feeling. <laughs> like, this, isn't, this isn't my place. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I'm, I know for sure that one of the roles I would play would be providing the capital. Um, mm. I am in a very privileged position of being an academic who's single without children. Um, I have huge debt, like big old student loan from getting that PhD, but I also have a, a, a decent income. Um, and I take that responsibility very seriously in a lot of ways. And, you know, some of them are relatively small in the sense of, I don't ever let a, a graduate student pay for a meal. Um, others are bigger for when I see, um, fat activists trying to fundraise to crowd surf stuff. I put down money and I put down a lot of money. Um, because I can, and I mean, granted, like, would I rather take that, you know, a couple hundred dollars and buy a new pair of shoes? Absolutely. Um, but I recognize that, you know, one of the privileges that I have is, is that disposable income. And so I, I put it where my mouth is, I guess you should say. Um, and so I've been really proud to be able to financially support a, a range of things, um, from podcasts to conferences, to art shows, to just, you know, lots of stuff. Um, and so that would be one role I would play, which probably is something that not a lot of people would talk about or think about, but yeah, no one's mentioned it so far. You need money to do things. Um, and so, you know, those of us that have some that we can share, I do feel it's a big responsibility to make sure that I am sharing that in a, in an ethical and, and socially just way. So that would be one role I would play. Um, I'm like all evidence potentially to the contrary. I am much more comfortable kind of organizing, orchestrating things behind the scenes. Um, I've basically become a professional fat person in New Zealand by default. Um, I'm the only fat study scholar in the country. I'm the only person that identifies as a fat activist, although there are people who I've now known for the entire 10 years I've been there that I think are probably maybe right on that cusp of you know, I don't know what it's going to take to tip them over. You know, maybe if I were to leave, they would, you know, kind of step into that role. But, um, well, I think one of the first really big media things that kind of put me into that position in New Zealand was an episode of 2020, um, where the producer had contacted me. They were keen to, to do something around the issue of weight. And I was talking to them as kind of the, the expert, right. The expert scholar on the side, and I'd had several conversations with the producer and they finally came back to me and said, we think you're the story. And I was like, yeah, I'm not the story <laughs> in any way, shape or form. I'm not interested in that. I, I, no, thank you. I said, but I'm very happy to be like the scholar, you know, that has a small little segment in the thing talking about fat politics or fat identity, whatever. So they came back to me uh, and said, look, if you're not the story, we're not going to do the story. And I was like, shit. <laughs> um, and it actually, I, I thought about it for weeks and they kept, you know, not pressuring. They kept following back up to say, have you made a decision? Because I really wasn't keen to have a full episode of 2020 in New Zealand focused on me and what I was doing. Uh, but I decided that, you know, these stories need to be told. And if this was the only way this particular one was going to get told, then... Yeah. All right. So I did, I stepped into that role. Um, and it wasn't a comfortable one for me. And there's a lot of that episode that is just cringeworthy, especially now. I'm like, Oh my God. Um, 
But that that very much really kind of position. New Zealand's a small country. I mean, we need to establish that it's four million people in a country where you could fit like four of them into the, the state of Texas, where I'm originally from. So it's not hard to become like a New Zealand celebrity in the first place. But that very much thrusts me as like the professional fat person, um, and it's a role that I play. Um, and in a lot of ways, I very much think of it as a performance. Um, but it's not one I've ever really been comfortable with. So in the resistance, uh, I would, I'll write the checks or be a check writer. I won't be the only one surely. Um, and I'm quite happy to be someone helping orchestrate things behind the scenes while other just, you know, more charismatic, better people. I don't know the right word are, are yeah, kind of on the front lines also would be happy to be, um, scut work. I'm very good at scut work. Scut work. Uh, the stuff that nobody else wants to do that has oh, to get done. Oh, nice. You know, uh, we call it scut in the restaurant well, business, and that was my oh, first job when I was 16. So, so. like, is, would that be the job of, like, say we t- took someone in, like, we found a spy amongst us, like, one of their spies. Mm. Uh, they'd have to get killed. Oh, no, not no. You wouldn't do that? That's like a button man. No, no, no. No one wants Assassin. to do that. Assassin. Um, no, no, no. I, I was thinking more like, you know, somebody, ha- somebody has to like, yeah, like uh, fold the pamphlets and right, like, okay, so, <laughs> well, my mind went elsewhere to be fair. Your mind very much did go elsewhere. Um, no, I don't, I, you know, in a way, like if we were really being kind of, you know, if we were trying a serious thing, I think I would be willing to die for a cause, but not willing to kill. Oh, interesting. Um, so yeah, when I think of scut work, I think of, yeah, like, well, I mean, all of the, yeah, the more kind of menial legwork kinds of things that a lot of people would find boring and uninspiring and, you know, it doesn't ever get attention, but I'm quite good at that kind of menial stuff, especially if I can listen to music while I do it. So I'll be doing that in the back room. They can bring me in for strategy sessions if needed. I guess there are two kinds of people. The people who want to fold pamphlets and the people who want to kill Nazis. I will punch a Nazi. Oh, that's good. Do not get me wrong. I am very clear about where I stand on that. It's funny. I am 38 years old. Um, Grew up privileged, white, straight, cis, well-off, uh, private, like the whole kind of thing. And never in my life did it ever occur to me that a really important litmus test for both people, but just everything is where do you stand on punching Nazis? Like far out. How is that a thing <laughs> in my lifetime? And in 2017, but yeah, no, for the record, I would punch Nazis. I spent hours Watching those oh videos of Richard Spencer getting punched, put to different music. Yeah. You know, oh, like yeah, every, yeah, this was going everywhere on Twitter. I spent, well, it, ins- it inspired my new show. <laughs> I spent hours yeah. watching those. Oh. My favorite for the record was the Depeche Mode, yeah. Just Can't Give It Up. Yeah. Um, two, two reasons. One, apparently Depeche Mode is his actual favorite band. <gasps> so it was nice that oh. a lot of people put Depeche Mode to it. Oh, uh, I think Personal Jesus was another favorite, like just because... <laughs> But yeah, both of those, without a doubt, were my favorite one. But yeah, if anyone listening has not seen that, oh, you need seriously, to see it. give it a Google. You will thank Richard us later. Punch in the face. Oh, it's to music, best. to Depeche Mode, especially. Oh, it's so, so good. good. It's so good. <laughs> okay, that's so cool. So you said you like you like the performance bit of the be, being a professional fat person. You said some parts of that thing, you, the 2020 segment, that it was cringeworthy. What, what made it cringeworthy? Because I feel like I might know exactly what you mean. Um, uh, I mean, 
part of it was the stuff that like I agreed to do. So like one of it, they had me do like a faux fashion show and like, let me just say, so Sophie can see me, the rest of you cannot, I'm not a fashionable person. (laughs) Um, I've never really had an affinity for fashion. I've never been good at fashion. I would imagine a lot of that is because my whole life growing up, fashion was not something that was seen as an option for me. I will, I will say that with the discovery of things like, um, uh, East Shatke and other online vendors that sell cute things in my size, which, you know, those two Venn diagrams never line up. Um, that I've become more interested in like caring about what I wear. But I mean, my whole life was, does, does it fit? Like mm. not even does it fit well. Right. But like, does it fit? And then it's maybe, does it fit well? And then it was buy it in every color it came in mm. because yeah. your options are one limited and two this way you'll have clothes for the next several years. I mean, that's how I shopped. Yeah. Like, um, so yeah, at one point they were like, well, let's do this fashion show, which consisted of me like, putting on different outfits and then like coming out in front of a full length mirror and he recorded all of it. And then they spliced it, you know, into a short montage of me just changed. Like, um, so part of the cringe worthy is just the things that I agreed to do. (laughs) And also like, I look at the outfits and I mean, they were my most fashionable, but I'm just like, Oh, like, like, um, the other part of it though is, uh, you know, my, where I was at that time, I mean, this is 2012, which was only five years ago, but I'm in such a different place now Mm. as an activist and the way that I think about these things. And so like when, when they asked me about health, first of all, I answered, I did talk about, it depends on what you mean by health, um, you know, metabolic health, da, da, da. I talked about health seeking behaviors, you know, riding your bike, getting enough sleep, having stress and coping mechanism, like all of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, um, and then kind of answered and said, you know, well, if you base it on BMI, no, if you base it on metabolic health, yes, if you base it on health seeking behavior, some days, yes, some, like, so I gave a pretty nuanced answer, which of course they cut down to just, you know, the last bit of it, which, you know, it's a TV show. It's what they're going to do. But if they asked me that now, I would say, why does that matter? So it's cringe. It, those are the two ways that I yeah. find it cringeworthy is both where I was at that time, yeah. which I recognize was part of the journey. Yeah. And the other part is, yeah, some of the things that they had me do. And I'm just like, why did I? <laughs> Isn't it? Because I've been asked to write an article about, uh, what was it? Oh, why I don't want to hear about people's diets. And I wrote a piece and it was an angry piece about how diet culture is mean and evil and uh, capitalist and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I got this message back saying, yeah, it wasn't really what we uh, expected. <laughs> we, we wanted more a piece where you talked about why it was insulting that people talked about their weight in front of you or their diet. And I was like, oh, oh, you want a lot of emotions, don't you? You oh. want a lot of, when I was a child, yeah. <laughs> I would go on diets and now I'm crying. And I was like, and so I tried to write a new one. It just became angrier. Yeah. It was just angrier and angrier and just more and more about like the system and systematic oppression. And I would say things like white supremacy. And <laughs> I was like, that's not what they want either. And you, oh, you reach a point not. where you go, do I want this thing published? <laughs> or do I want to kind of give in on my personality a bit and mm. just give them what they want which is that oh, but how did you feel how did it make you feel oh my god it did, you should see there's a front cover of a Danish like glossy magazine that I did 
Well, the picture's me. <laughs> the picture's me leaning up against a tree, looking into the distance. <laughs> and then the, the the title they chose was like, Sophie Hagen. Finally, I love my body. Oh, oh my God. Like, oh. nice. Yeah, every time. Um, so New Zealand again, very small. Uh, so there's one like professional photographer in my town who does all the media stuff and like his, he's employed for, there's two media companies in New Zealand. So he's employed for one of them, but like, even if the other one wants photos, they still have to get it, you know? Um, so Zach and I are on, you know, pretty decent terms because at least it's about every other year that, you know, he ends up having to come around to get new photos. And, um, the first couple of years, it was always kind of this running joke because like, he always wanted to get a photo of me like walking outside, um, the outside photos, which, yeah. And like, you know, I I remember I asked him probably the second or third time, like why outside, why walk, like Mm. explain this to me, you know, and he talked about, Oh, well just outside is more dynamic and you know, da, 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 and, you know, and he was like, well, and the physical activity aspect is really great, you know, and I was like, because I'm a fat person, you know, like what, um, you know, and so now like, I won't do that for him anymore. And he knows that. Um, and so like, I suggest other things like with props, you know, various fat appropriate props and stuff. And I mean, he's always a really good sport about it, but, um, yeah, there's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, dealing with the media in general and any fat activist um, who does deal with the media. Like I strongly recommend Charlotte Cooper wrote a piece called no more media stitch ups. Um, she wrote it shortly after her fatty Olympics event in the UK, which was, I want to say 2013 maybe, but it's a really good piece. And I mean, she talks about like, you know, the, the, the basically like, yeah, how not to have media stitch ups, which are so common. Um, and I've actually written about that on my blog after the first fat studies conference that I held, I talked about, like, you know, this, these are the ways I screwed up with the media. These are the things I would recommend with the media. Because for the most part, like, the mainstream media doesn't give a shit about you or about fatness or about fat politics or about the damage that they have helped perpetuate against fat people in the fat community. They don't care about any of that. You know, they want their clickable whatever it yeah. is. And so, you know, it unfortunately falls on individual activists to be media savvy enough to either just say no, um, which I've gotten a lot more comfortable with lately in the last couple of years. And I'm really glad I have, um, you know, it was hard at the start cause it kind of felt like, well, if I say no, then, you know, these stories aren't going to get told or they're never going to call me again, or they would just won't do anything about fatness. And now I've actually learned that like, it's okay to say no when it's crappy. You know, like you don't have to participate in your own exploitation, (laughs) which, you know, was a harder lesson for me to learn than I would have liked to have thought it would have been. Um, But yeah, being media savvy about, you know, now when I do agree, um, especially if it's more than just because oftentimes like I'm called just to comment on because, again, I'm the professionally fat person in New Zealand. And so they'll call me and say, like, have you seen this study? Can we get a quote or something? But when it's going to be longer than that, like when it's, you know, an op-ed that I'm writing or it's, you know, where it's not just a quote, but, you know, I'm kind of woven through the story, there are now conditions, you know. One of them is that a headless fatty cannot Mm. be the cover image of that. And, of course, they're always like, oh, but how else are we, you know, like... Yawn. I once wrote an article where they put a photo of a pregnant woman. <laughs> 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 I 
just really weird. I mean, they just, they're like, well, how else would we, yeah. you know, how else are we going to find a picture of it? Uh, and so you direct them to the Stocky Bodies Image Library, which is an image library full of fat people that's free for media to use. Um, but, you know, so there's certain things like that that you kind of figure out, um, depending on the kind of media, um, I won't agree to do it unless I get to read it first. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is really rare. And like most reporters are like, nope, sorry, can't do it. And I'm like, yeah. all right, go find somebody else then. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't ask for veto. Like, I don't, you know, ask to be able to make any changes. But, you know, if you want to write a piece about me yeah. and your mainstream media, if I don't get to see it first, I'm not going to agree to it because it's just, it's just too gross what they do. Yeah. Oh, I, I do ask to have it edited because they'll always say overweight. They oh, always right. have to change the fat. Always. And then they get really upset. I'm like, no. I'm yeah, not. no, that's one of, that's another condition. Yeah. So yeah, no I'm headless fatties, no O words. Uh, no yeah. O words. Yeah, no O words. And also like oftentimes like no doctors, no medical doctors. Oh. So like if the piece is about health, fine. But if it's about like civil rights stuff, absolutely not. Like if you want to Another expert opinion, I, t- I direct them to, like, scholars who study civil rights. Because, yeah, it's like, why would you have a medical doctor in a piece on civil rights? That's just dumb. How does being a fat activist affect you, like, as a person? Because I know you're a scholar and you're very intelligent and you know how to do this and from, like, an activist, not that cringy personal, I mean, I was a child kind of thing. <laughs> but how as, like, being just, like, this activism thing... Yeah, how does that, like, if it wasn't in your life, like, how has it changed how, what your life would have been like if you weren't into it? Do you know what I'm kind of trying to ask? Kind of. I mean, I think, you know, in a way, it's difficult for me to separate them all out, you know, like, because, like, my paid employment as a scholar, my activism as a hobby, and I'm a very fat person and I've been my whole life. So in a way, like they all bleed into one another, which I think strengthens all of them, but I think also weakens all of them, you know, as well, or in some ways as well. Um, I mean, I, I can say without a doubt that like the politics aspect of it has made me be able to say out loud all the things that I always thought, you know, there was nothing wrong with me that, you know, I don't need to be apologetic for who I am and, you know, I don't have to, you know, I refuse to apologize for the space I take up in this world. And before I was an activist, before I was political, that was true internally. And I would never have apologized, but I wouldn't have said out loud, Mm. I refuse to apologize for the space I take up in this world. So I think in that way, you know, like the activists, the activism really allowed me to be just out in that way, you know, in the way of, um, you know, not necessarily keeping things to myself, which in a way is good. And, uh, in a way probably is not so good. Uh, <laughs> I think that, um, you know, kind of going back to the like New Zealand, a small country and being professionally fat, it has a huge impact on just my everyday life and the way that I live, both in the fact that, I'm very aware that people are watching me or that see me in ways that they might not have seen me before I was on the cover of the two largest newspapers before I did 2020. And every now and then when I start to kind of feel like, Oh, it's not a thing I'm, you know, 
checking in at a concert and handing over my tickets to Lady Gaga and the woman scanning my tickets was like, oh my God, you're that fat lady from TV. And I'm like, yeah, there's 4 million people in this country and I do a lot of media and yeah, like people know who I am. Everybody knows me. And that's just the reality. And in a way that that's great that there's a, you know, a fat positive person that is seeping, you know, into their lives, whether they like it or not. But in another way, like I feel that. And every year when I go back to the States, when I'm walking through LAX, I can, I almost, I can almost feel like the physical lifting of here. I really am just a face in the crowd. Nobody knows me. Nobody's going to pay attention to what I'm eating or what I'm wearing or how I'm acting. Like, so I, I feel that very much. Like I, I feel the, is that a good thing? See, that's a positive thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't miss that weight, Yeah, you know, when I'm walking through LAX and I really do feel like I can feel it kind of lifting from me. Like I'm like, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I, I definitely, you know, it definitely impacts, you know, kind of my daily, it doesn't so much impact the choices that I make because I have very little shame I think I've kind of always had very little shame, but becoming an activist has like increased my decreased my shame or increased my lack of shame (laughs) um, to a really great degree. So, you know, I don't make my choices about like what I'm going to eat or that kind of stuff, but I'm still aware of it, you know, when I'm out and what people are thinking. And, you know, sometimes it's fun to fuck with people. (laughs) Well, like how? What do you mean? Um, I mean, you know, just to, it's fun to watch people get nervous when you say the F word out loud. And so, you know, sometimes if I'm really doing something that really exemplifies that hashtag obese lifestyle, such a great tag. I missed that tag on Twitter. (laughs) Can we bring it back? Um, you know, I'll actually like make a comment, you know, like, Hey, you know, super fat lady surprise, you know, whatever. I was just in Hong Kong for a few days on my way to Berlin. And I think I've, I must've been the fattest person who's ever been in Hong Kong because just the responses I was getting from people, the looks, the stares, the pointing, the picture taking, uh, I got to the point where when I'd catch someone taking my picture, depending on their response to me, I would either give them a really nice pose or I'd flip them off (laughs) in both the American and the British way. Um, you know, most people were sheepish about it. Like, Oh, you know, you caught me. And so I'd give them my best smile and give them an actual pose. And other people were just kind of like, so, you know, you're obviously a freak show. Like I'm allowed to take your picture and they would get, they would get the fingers. Um, yeah. So, you know, sometimes you, I hate this phrase and I only use it because I don't have a better phrase to, to, to use in place of it, but you know, sometimes leaning in yeah, to that is really both effective and also incredibly satisfying. Yeah. I remember, I remember the first time I did that, it was, I was visiting my brother in Dubai, which is already a horrible place. And I was in the International House of Pancakes, which is a very, very good place. I hop. <laughs> I, uh, I miss I Oh my God. It was so God, good. And I was having years. a, I was having a, either, I don't know if it was pancakes or a burger. It was a burger. And then I saw these four women like stare and look and like make comments and laugh. And I think it was the first time where well, usually that I would have just crumbled and been ashamed and all of that. And then I just went, 
no. And I called the waiter over and I said, can I have another burger, please? And then I ate the second burger while looking at them. Just full on, like 10 minutes of staring at them. They were so uncomfortable. Nice. It made me so happy. Nice. I was so full. I couldn't eat that second burger, but I did it. Yeah, we in need a phrase. Because I do, I hate the phrase lean in because of like where it yeah, came from and just that horrible book. But the idea of, you it's know. like owning it in some way. Oh. Like, let's create a, create a hashtag. We need something about bellies. Bellies. Yeah, like Ooh. belly in or... Oh, yeah, instead of sucking in your belly. Yeah, like... Belly... Belly out or something that means lean in, but we'll, we'll have to think yeah, about that. this is your language. Yeah, language? if anyone out there has any ideas, let us know. Yes, that yeah. would be a really great... We'll have it on a t-shirt. Really great hashtag <laughs> to start getting going. Ex- examples of, yeah, yeah leaning yeah. into your fatness. Amazing. So the last question I always ask people is mm. this. Um, so imagine you're holding yourself as a teeny tiny baby. You're oh, in a delivery sure. room. And you're just, uh, you're the first guest I've had who actually did the move, the, the actual <laughs> reenactment of all I mean, you're stuff. doing it. I'm so always I'm like, doing okay, it. I'll do it. <laughs> so you're in the delivery, you were just born, and you get this rare opportunity to, to look at yourself, a teeny tiny baby, and you're crying and screaming because there's lights and sounds, and it was much more comfortable. It's a harsh in the world. Room. It's such a harsh world. And you think this is it, like, this is the worst it's ever going to get. You know, it's not. Like, you know, there'll be lights and sounds in the rest of your life, but it won't be lights and sounds. It'll be other things, but it'll be equally terrifying. But you know what's going to happen in the next 38 years of this baby's life. <laughs> you can't change anything. Like, you can't make it do other things. The same things will happen. But you can say something to the baby in that moment that might, well, whatever you want to do, if you want to calm it down, or if you want to, whatever you want, you get to say something to little baby you. What would you say? I'm trying to find something really profound and I'm failing. <laughs> um, so I tend to live my life. Can, I'm going to get to this in a roundabout way. Um, because of the fact that I've been fat and super fat for a lot of my life, I've always been... I've grown up in kind of this, this shroud or this cloak of like, you're not going to live very long doctors, media, family, you know, all this kind of stuff. So there's a big part of me that doesn't think I'm going to live until 50. And that's true. Like legitimately, like I will be surprised if I make it past 50. Um, if I do make it past 50, I really, really want a really great way to be able to be like, you know, fuck all y'all. Like, do I get a parade? You know, because I know if I don't make it to 50 or no matter when I die, there's going to be a lot of haters out there that are going to celebrate my death and they're going to point to it and be like, well, what did she expect? Even if I like die because I got hit by a bus at like 88 or something, they're still going to be like fatty, fat, fat, you know, like what did she expect? Of course she's going to die because non-fat people, of course, don't die. Um, so I very much like I just, I kind of live my life just with this assumption that like, I only have a few more years left. And so part of what that looks like to me and what I would say to said baby, um, and it's a quote from my favorite artist of all time, Madonna, um, is there's only so much you can learn in one place. And I very much live my life by that idea, you know, both in the there's only so much time, like if we think of places kind of in temporality aspects, you know, but also that idea of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, um, 
bellying in. I don't think I like that as the lean in. We'll, have to th- we'll think of something. Think of it. Um, leaning into, yeah, things that you might be afraid of, you know, doing at least one thing every year that really scares you kind of idea. But there's only so much you can learn in one place is, is really kind of the mantra that I, off, I tend to live my life by. So that would be what I would tell that itty bitty baby. <laughs> Not that that would be useful for the kid in any way for a really long time. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really all I can come up with. That's really good. That's really good. It's one of my favorite, one of my favorite answers. So where can people uh, like look you up? What, you have blog? Mm. You have Friend of Marilyn, the podcast? Yeah. I, I mean, if you just Google Friend of Marilyn, you'll probably find me. But the blog is just friendofmarilyn.com. If you search in iTunes for Friend of Marilyn, you'll find the show. I'm F-O-M-N-Z on Twitter. Tumblr.friendofmarilyn.com. Like, You're just Friend of Marilyn. It's pretty easy to find. And actually, like, I don't know how many of you out there use About Me, which I find is a really useful landing page on, online. I didn't even know about that. Uh, yeah. So um, seriously, seriously, it's, it's free to set up, but basically the idea is it's a it's – it's, you know, it ends up, so mine is like about me slash friend of Marilyn. And it's a one paragraph blurb about who I am and then links to all of my uh, places online. Oh, that's Twitter, Tumblr, podcast, YouTube channel, like the whole thing. So it's a nice landing page, yeah. you know, like directing people there is kind of a one shop oh. stop, uh, which is even easier to navigate maybe than a blog. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, and yeah, I hope... If there are people out there listening that don't listen to the show, I hope they'll tune in. The show's currently on a world tour. So um, when I was getting ready to celebrate five years of the show, looking back over the guests and everything I'd had over the previous five years, I realized that for the most part, I was talking to other white women, which is just gross um, and not okay. So I thought, well, what's a way I can really challenge myself to make that not the case anymore? And thought, well, let's do a tour And in my mind, I thought I'll do a one-year tour the fifth year of the show and, you know, try to find people all over the world. And we're now into the second year because I basically only got through the Middle East in the tour because once I started finding people, I didn't, I didn't want to have to pick, you know, so I was able to find a lot of people along the way. And so if I find you, I interview you. And this year it's working its way across the continent of Africa. So I think at the moment shows the last show that aired last week was Botswana, uh, And Africa will take up the whole rest of this year. And next year, it'll be Europe. And the year after that, it'll be the Americas. So the show's a bit different than it used to be because it used to be um, a bit more... Topical's probably the wrong word, but the way I used to find my guests was uh, something would happen in the fatosphere or something. It would come across my Twitter feed, my Facebook feed, and I'd write them and say, hey, come, come on my show this week and talk about it. With the tour, that's not the way that that's working because I'm trying to do it in an actual, like if I was physically making a tour, but the shows are still great. So hopefully people out there will give it a listen. I agree. It's really Along great. with the other fat positive podcasts, right? So there's bad fat broads, which is amazing. Which I know is that amazing. one. Yeah. There's fat lip. I didn't know that one. Oh yeah. Fat lip is done by Ash. So she's super fat and fantastic. Um, but my favorite one is the black joy mixtape. And I didn't know that one either. 
So the Black Joy mixtape. Such a bad activist. Well, the Black Joy mixtape specifically, they probably wouldn't call it a like. It's not specifically fat. Okay. About fat. Uh, they're two fat black women though, and it isn't doesn't come up in every episode, but it comes up enough that for me, like I classify it as one of my favorite um, fat positive podcasts. I'll, I'll say though, like their show is not for the newly aware. Um, like, you know, it's, if you're interested in race, uh, and white privilege and like hearing about how white people have no self-control, which is one of the recurring segments and my favorite of all of them, uh, (laughs) it's a really great show, but it's definitely, yeah. Like you wouldn't want to start there. So if you're just starting your journey into understanding racial injustice and whatnot, put that, put that on the list to get to in the future, but it's a fantastic podcast and one of my favorites. I don't ever miss it. I think we're going to have to have like a long list of everything you've suggested in this. Just, <laughs> I'm going to try and I'm going to try and put that in the uh, in the description mm. in the episode, whatever it's called. Right. <laughs> uh, this is amazing. Thank you so so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, Sophie. It was fun. It was. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you agree with me that she's super super cool. Um, I love doing this podcast. This is the bit where I'm, I'm essentially going to ask you for money and there's no pressure. This is a pre podcast. You can just, in theory, you could just turn off now and like nothing will happen and it'll continue to be that way because I love creating this and I, I, I genuinely feel like it matters. I think it's a good thing that we're doing here and like having Mopad listeners in my audience is just, I mean, it blows my mind how, how great you people are. So genuinely you can turn it off now. Um, If this podcast has brought you anything, anything good in your life, if it's made you just, if it's kept you company, if it's made you feel good, if if you think it's a good thing, you um, you can become a patron, which is via patreon.com forward slash Mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D. It's where you, you decide what amount of money you want to give per episode. You sign up for that and then you just leave it and it'll uh, d- deduct, it'll d- withdraw, deduct, whatever. Take money from your account once a month uh, based on how many episodes came out that month. It's always once uh, once a week. So it's what is like a maximum of like worst case scenario, what, five episodes a month? Worst case? Um, best case, three. I don't know how months work. I'm just guessing. But you can, um, you can become a patron and uh, it means an awful lot. It means that I can... Um, you know, that sometimes, you know, being a comedian, you have to take all these gigs that are in the middle of nowhere and they're too drunk, stack dudes that just heckle and shout, like, just go like, oh, show us your tits or whatever. And that you have to do it because you have to make a living. So having a Patreon means that I don't have to do those gigs. I can, I can instead set up a really important or nice or fun interview or I can do these, like, recordings that take a surprisingly long amount of time so so that's what that that is what it does it you, you're, you're keeping me alive <laughs> i'm so happy for that so um you can go to patreon and donate and if you give more than five dollars per episode you get a special thank you at the end of the episode and um by special thank you i mean i butcher your name <laughs> so here is a, a massive thank you to my $5 plus patrons. I would like to thank Kathy Draxelbauer, Robert Knowles, Eve Winkrith, Victoria Greer, Marnie Biles, Phil Vapolis, Olivia Hove, Zoe Cumberland, Maria Mrs. Lindenskog, Joe C., Purdy Patterson, 
Uh, Steph Ream, Murray Fraser, oh, it's new names. Ruth Harvey, Jane Young, Dan Smith, Gillian Brady, Bethany Dalstrom, Aiden Forrester, Andrea Papillon, Dashing Bengal, Katie Hatfield, Robin Kapper, James Frew, Karen Threthaway, Russell Hughes, Ida Sugo Larsen, Lucy Inger Ellingsen, Imogen Versen, Maddie Searle, Caleb Melchior, Zach Hilliker, Jessica Stolfire, Meg, Emma Chan, Sylvia Novak, Georgia Brown, Kathy Beveridge, Emma Walton, Andy Walker, Geraldo Nascimento, Claire, Danny Beckett, Fiona Richardson, Claire Lamb, Grace Suter, Kat Piller, Herman Dyke, Eleanor, Sarah Ferreira, Ica Sid, Cherie Dunphy, and Daniel Reifershade. I mean, it's only good that there's more and more people coming, but what a tongue twister, I think you'd call it. Um, you can also, if you're completely broke, fair enough, I get that. You can, uh, you know, share the Mopod on, on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, message a friend you think would like it and tell them to listen or leave a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening. You're great. I want to thank Bailey Leonard for my jingle. I want to thank Linda Brinkhouse for my logo and the Phoenix Artist Club and Peter Dunbar for letting me record episodes there. Speak to you next week. Bye. Thank you.